Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can Hi, scream folks, this is Jack Spirico With another edition of the Survival Podcast And as always, one man's view of the changing world The changing times and the things that we can all do to live a better life If times get tough Or even if they don't dictate it As almost always the case during my 50-mile commute Between Arlington and Frisco, Texas This is episode 310 of the Survival Podcast. It is November 4th, 2009, and we are rocking on to the end of the year in no time at all. It will be Thanksgiving, and then Christmas, and then 2010. Boom! And then for some of you people, we're only two years and ten months or twelve months away from the end of the world as we know it forever because 2012 is going to kill us all. If you are that person, please let me know who you are and I will be buying your stuff from you on eBay in January of 2013. Everybody else, calm, rational, prepping, that's what the show's all about. Today we're doing a listener question show. I have ten awesome questions today. A little bit of politics, a little bit of gardening, a little bit of practicality. A little bit of personal stuff. Uh, really great questions today. Some some new stuff we haven't had before, um, and I think we're really going to enjoy. It. Before that, let's knock out the housekeeping. Number one, make sure you're taking care of our sponsors. They're supporting the show, and that helps bring the show to you every day. Sponsor of the day today: MERS-Radio.com. Again, M-U-R-S a hyphen then the word radio.com, or you can find their banner on our site. Absolutely excellent methods of communication at the family level, neighborhood level, things like that. Really cool security sensors. So you can have a little base station in your house, right, set a couple sensors out on your property, and if something motion activates one of those sensors, your little base station and your little handhelds that are running on that frequency will say alert, sector one, alert, sector two. Even a hunter can use this, turn the volume on the handheld way, way, way down, put out a couple sensors, throw an earbud in, and set them out on your game trails when you're watching game trails for deer. Alert sector one. That means that the game trail one of deer's on the way. Be creative with things, and uh, MERS gives you an opportunity to do that. Speaking of creative, other sponsor today, Sawtooth Tactical. Really cool stuff. I mean, this is the, the tactical stuff that uh, us guys get into so much. Check out Sawtooth Tactical, and I'll tell you what. What I've learned from the people that have bought from them uh, in the past, before we took them on as a sponsor, when they kind of had a problem happen where one of the one of the owners was ill, they fall over backwards when something goes wrong to make it right. The stand-up people, that's the kind of people that do business with in America today. So with that, uh, sponsorships knocked out. Number two, forum, get involved, done. Go to the site, click on forum. Go to the forum, sign up, register, become a member, start posting, start reading, do it. Uh, next, if you think the show, the site, everything we do is worth 20 cents an episode, consider joining the member support brigade. You'll get exclusive content available only to members, discounts from vendors, uh, free publications, uh, members-only video, you name it, it's back there. Pays for itself for your first year and almost your second year now on day one. We'll keep adding value for you. And with that, we are knocked out of the housekeeping quick as I could since yesterday's was long and ready to go on into things. Um, First question is sort of a political slash economic question. And it's one you've probably heard on talk radio tons of times. And I know some of you guys go, Jack, I listen to you because you're not like talk radio. I don't want you to go to talk radio topics. Well, 
hang with me on this one question because I promise you the way I'm going to analyze this is not going to be like anything you've heard on talk radio before, especially at the national level. Um, the question is, could we ever move to a flat tax? Why? Or why not? And uh, I'm going to give people's first names out today as long as they came in because that doesn't help identify anybody because I think it'll make it more personal. This question comes from Janelle. Um, Janelle and everybody else, let's look at this question the the first way that it's always looked at and the way that you described it in your email. You said that you think it's more fair, it's more equitable, um, but all the progressive and liberals say, well, the rich should be taxed more and the poor should be taxed less. The common argument to this is the people that make under 50 thousand dollars a year with a home and a family pay zero income tax right now. That's true. And uh, the, the, the wealthy and even the, the, the higher middle income are paying a disproportionate amount of tax. That's true. This would fix the problem. That's true. All right. And then the, the, the rebuttal against it is the people making less money can't afford it. Well, they're paying it now. And this is where I'm going to start to diverge from the common arguments. The, the, the common argument from the, the right is, you see, um, pardon the interruption there, folks, employee, want to tell me he's going to be late for work. Um, but um, you see, the problem with that thinking is that it assumes that the people making less than 50000 are not already being affected by the income tax on the wealthy. The, the people that pay the most income tax in this country make over $200,000 a year. They're in the highest tax bracket, and most of them are business owners. Now, they employ people, and because they get taxed so hard, they employ less people. That hurts the overall economy. When you tax them harder, they don't just pay the money, okay? And that's the myth, that if we tax the wealthy, they'll just pay. No, they won't. They raise prices, they cut expenses. They take the money out of the business to compensate for the loss. All right, And then they get, that gets handed down in job losses and increased prices to the consumer, the majority of which are the supposed poor in this country making less than 50. And there's people out there making 20 that think people that make 50 are rich. All right, So that, that's the first diversion. But here's the real key. This is why this will never fly in our country with their current ass clowns in our government. You have to gut the government and get rid of the ass clowns to get this done. And honestly, if we can get it done, we're better off following Ron Paul's plan. Ron Paul's plan cut spending to 2001 levels, eliminate personal income tax 100%. Nobody ever pays personal income tax in the United States again because it's unconstitutional. That would be plan A. We wanted to do a flat tax. Here's why it won't happen. The minute we did it, let's say we said, okay, here's what we're going to do. 10% for everybody. You make a million, you pay 100000 you make uh, 10000 you pay 1000 Well, the, the liberal, the whiner, will say, oh, my God, the person making 10000 can't afford the 1000 and the person making a million can afford a lot more than 100000 They're keeping 900000 of dollars that they work their ass off for and risk their ass off most likely for at that, that level, folks. But that's that's not the problem. See, the problem for the politician then is, what do you do when you want to raise taxes? Ah, there's the problem. No more class warfare. You see, Barack Obama won the presidency saying, I will raise taxes. It's insane. How the hell can a guy run on a platform saying, I will raise taxes and win? Bill Clinton did it. How? You say, I'm only going to raise taxes for the wealthy. That's what the progressive graduated income tax, which, by the way, is 
factually, factually one of the 12 planks of the Communist Manifesto. If you read Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto, there's a, a series of planks. And to make a government communist, you must install all the planks. And one of the planks is a graduated income tax. Absolutely factual. Check it out if you doubt me. So that's one of the planks of the Communist Manifesto that came into the United States in, 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 the, in the early you know, early 1900s. It really became into effect and then was pushed and magnified under FDR. Communist tenant. Because it incites class warfare. Because that's what communism is all about. Having an extreme elite that pits all the other classes of society against each other and supposedly is for the worker, which, folks, the worker is the middle class. It's an illusion. So if we went to a flat tax rate and a politician says, we need more revenues, we need to raise taxes, can't play the game anymore. And that's why we have to gut this government. Because they're playing that game, and they've been playing that game for over 100 years. So there you go. Political, but uh, you asked, so you got an answer. Switching 180 degrees around. Rebecca sends me an email. Lots of women out there listening to the show, folks. Um, they have kudzu on their property. Uh, they want to be, the basic question is, do we kill it or eat it? They, they heard they can eat it, and uh, a lot of people over in the Orient eat it, but it grows so fast, they're afraid it'll kill trees and other um, things on their property, so what do they do? I sent her an email yesterday, a quick answer, and it was, if you want to eat it, Cut it, cut it often. Cut it and eat it, cut it and feed it to livestock, cut it and compost it, but you ought to cut it often, like every other day. Folks, kudzu can double its size in 24 to 48 hours. That's how fast this stuff grows in you know optimum parts of the country. If you want to kill it, you can do that. Um, it's actually really hard to kill. You could probably try to kill it, and you'll still have some coming back. Uh, maybe you'd put a huge dent in the growth rate and be able to harvest. I'd be careful what you use to kill it. Or you might want to kill some portion thereof and leave only one or two vines. You still have to keep an eye on this stuff. Now, interestingly enough, over in the Orient, where they, they harvest it on a daily basis almost, and they use it as feed for livestock, and they use it as a food for people, um, they don't seem to have a problem with it. It doesn't seem to bother them. But if you've been to Atlanta, Georgia, and the outskirts of Atlanta, Georgia, you've seen what kudzu can do when it goes away from you. So in the end, it's up to you. But I'm going to tell you, anybody with kudzu on your property, if you're going to allow it to exist at all, you better have a, a maintenance plan for cutting. It will be cut, and it will be cut often. The problem is, if you let it get really big, huge, and you cut it back to the ground, you've really hurt yourself, even though you, you haven't let it get away from you yet. Any plant, especially a plant that, that grows rapidly like kudzu, maintains a ratio between the root system and the canopy. And as you cut it back, the root system will shrink some. This is a permaculture uh, fact, and it's what you do with legumes. You let a legume tree grow so high, it produces nitrogen on its root system, you cospice it halfway down, it drops a lot of its hair roots, it drops nitrogen into the soil, and it begins the process again. But every time you cut it, less of the root system goes away because the regrowth is faster. Same thing with kudzu. So every time you let it get really out of hand, then you cut it, even you cut it to the ground, 
It's got this massive root system, so its growth rate is even faster than before. So it really has to be kept in check. Uh, another thing you might consider doing if you have it growing in a clump is to go ahead and cut a trench around it. You might even want to rent a trencher and treat it like bamboo and put a, a concrete or a rubber barrier. It's still going to run over the top and out the bottoms, but it'll help some of the root running. It's six of one and half a dozen of the other. You've either got a non-stop, continuous source of food and food for livestock that's a danger if it runs away, or you, you kill it and you don't have it anymore. Uh, you've got to make your own choice in the end. Those are my thoughts on kudzu. And uh, really think hard if you don't have it before you introduce this stuff into the environment, folks. Even if you grow it in a pot, it'll go to seed. It'll, it'll find a way to spread. Uh, they call it the vine that ate the south for a reason. If you're not familiar with kudzu, just uh, look it up online. K-U-D-Z-U. And uh, look it up in Google Images and you'll see that it'll actually eat trees. It'll, it'll so engulf a tree and rob it of sunlight um, that it'll actually kill the tree. The tree will die from lack of sunlight. And it's done that to huge swaths of the, uh, the southeast where it's been introduced. It is a great feed. Cattle, okay. Hogs love it. Uh, and I think that's why it does well in the Orient. They're very big on their pork in China uh, and the other you know, Southeast Asian countries. And uh, it's a great hog feed. And if you have a good, uh, a good uh, group of hogs, um, you can probably handle on small acreage the kudzu very easily simply by harvesting clumps of it every single day and using it as a major supplement to your hogs. And uh, if you have free-range hogs that can hit it, they'll, they'll hammer it every day for you. So uh, there's some thoughts on kudzu. Next question comes from Larry. He's got two. I decided to go ahead and answer both of them because the first one's short, simple, and easy. Do I plan on writing a book on survivalism? Yes, it's in process. I'm making decisions now about how to go to publish with it, uh, whether to use a conventional publisher, whether to self-publish, whether to take the approach that James Stevens took with a uh, kind of an intermediate system where you're paying the publishing cost but you have more of a, a traditional publisher house working with you on a a split cost basis. I'm not sure exactly how I'm going to do this yet. I've considered using things like Create Pay, Create Space, or Lulu. Um, but the problem is that it's going to be the, the, my first book is going to be fairly large, and the larger the book, when you use self-publishing, the higher your printer costs, and I want to keep the cost down to a reasonable level. So I am working on that book. I, I expect to be done with it in the January to February time frame. Um, or thereabouts. And if you are like really good at editing uh, and you would like to volunteer as an editor, um, I'm looking to assemble kind of an editorial team to kind of gang up on this thing and edit you know, chapter by chapter. Like I send you a chapter, you edit it and send it back to me. Uh, I don't want my voice changed in it. So that's if you're like a nitpicky editor that says that's not proper English, I don't want you. I want spelling and basic grammar. But I don't want my voice in the writing chair. I don't care if it's not proper, so to speak. Uh, but if you're up for that, send me an email, jack at the survivalpodcast.com, and uh, I welcome you to the editorial team, and you'll be named in the book for that. Um, next thing is, before I answer Larry's second question, which is also on books, my book is going to be planned to be a book that tells you what to do prior to a crisis. 
and then what plan to enact based on that activity if a crisis occurs. It is not going to be another book about running off in the wilderness and a bunch of primitive skills. Not that I might not never write a book like that. I just think there's a lot of great ones out there. It's not going to be about exactly what to do in the middle of a crisis. It's going to be more preemptive, common sense, things like we talk about here every day. And a huge portion of it's going to be the 12-part philosophy of modern survivalism and things like disaster commonality and disaster probability and threat impact. All right, So that's going to be my first, uh, first major book. I've done a couple smaller books, but that's my first major one. And it will be coming out early next year. I need to have it out early next year. When I go full-time with this thing, it's another source of income. His next question is, right now, shit hits the fan. What are three books that you would consider must-haves? Um, to be fair, if I don't have a book on my bookshelf, if I haven't read it, I don't recommend it. And uh, so only the books that are on my book list qualified to be in here. And I took your question a little bit differently. Um, I, I don't think it makes sense to wait till the shit hits the fan to start taking action. And your question was worded as, the shit has hit the fan, I can grab three books. I'm in Barnes & Noble when it happens. I can steal three books. And then I'm going to go out and live using the knowledge in those books. Um, I know maybe you didn't mean it that way, but that's kind of how it was worded. I took it differently because I think this would be more practical for people. I decided to build kind of a book portfolio on three key books uh, that would help you in three different ways. The first one is the best common sense prepping book that I know of, and that is Making the Best of Basics by James T. Stevens. James's book is really not about what to do after the fact. It's what to do before the fact occurs to you as an individual or to all of us collectively, and be prepared. Right, so that and to live basically, it's it's a lot like my show. It's how to live day to day and, and do more with less, but still have a great life. So a lot of synergy there. And when I met James and read his book, I was very impressed, and I was actually glad I had over a year under my belt uh, before I met him because I think it would have looked like if I had read that book early that I took a lot of my philosophy from him. Mine is much more self developed and it's different, but there's a lot of similarities there. So I highly recommend making the best of basics. Uh, the next one is uh, Christopher Nidges's, uh new book, and it's How to Survive Anywhere. Um, Chris is a real survivalist. I met Chris at dirt time. Um, Chris is a guy you could, all of these things that you see Les Stroud or, or Bear Gryllis doing, I think Chris Ninjas could do one better. Um, you could pick this guy up and drop him off anywhere in the United States. He'll find food. He'll build shelter. And not only will he get through the situation, he'll enjoy himself doing it. And uh, he, he'll probably find somebody to teach while he, find somebody lost and say, hey, man, let's just not go back. Let me teach you while we're at this. That's just the kind of guy he is. This book is exceptional, and it is it is the book like you were asking about, Larry, that is, hey, it has happened, what do I do now? There's some prepping, but there's a lot of what to do in a bad situation in there. So I really like that is the heavy, action-ended, individualized book. The next book... Um, that I would add is the practical what to do that relies more on things like 
take, you know, knowing what to do, what government agencies to rely on, uh, things that are closer to what I talk about, but maybe a little bit more government involved than I talk about, uh, and going to that other way, and it's called what to do when the shit hits the fan. What to do when the shit hits the fan, and it's by a guy named David Black. All three of those books are in my book list. I'll put links to all three of them in today's show notes, and uh, I just found out that what to do when the shit hits the fan is now available on Kindle. Um, and I think that's a really good book. Don't let the cover scare you with this one. It looks very apocalyptic. It's got big flames and all. But it's a very practical book. And the gentleman that wrote it, David Black, I'd love to get him on the show sometime. Um, he spent some time in the Peace Corps, and his experiences in in this mountainous region with the Peace Corps make me think feel, it made me think a lot of my experiences in Honduras during my military time, except his was tougher because he was like the only American there, and he didn't have the camaraderie that I did, and uh, I, I see a lot of similarities there and a lot of affinity with that, and maybe that's why I like the book, but when you look at the book, it's more of a practical guide, and I think it's a very good book for the novice, because it does things like defined terms. If there's a pandemic, what words are you going to hear flying around, and what do they all mean? What do you do, you know, beyond washing your hands and uh, covering your cough, for God's sakes? Uh, very good book. So, again, Making the Best of Basics, How to Survive Anywhere, and What to Do When the Shit Hits the Fan uh, by James Stevens, Christopher Nitches, and David Black, respectively. Uh, good question, Larry. And uh, let's go on from there. Before I go on, I do have a book list on the side. I don't mention it that often. Uh, all the links, except for James Stevens, which go direct to the publisher, uh, go through Amazon.com. Please use those links, James. James's link or the other links if you're going to buy the book online. You're going to run out and buy it used or at a bookstore. Don't spend your money on Amazon just for me. But if you're going to buy something from Amazon, go through my link. It'll help support the show and it won't cost you a penny. All right. um, Next one, this guy kind of sent this more to me as a suggestion for maybe an article that I would write and submit to maybe a magazine, and I may do that. I think it would be a good way to get the message out. But it was in regards to yesterday's show of, about rural living, and his basic statement was, you know, what do you think about the comparison between urban, small town, and rural, with rural being more of a remote thing? And I think that maybe you didn't get what I meant by rural. By rural, I mean dotted little small towns around, but none of them of any really big size. Or one big town, one big small town, right? Hot Springs, Arkansas is a small town. That's small town USA. But if you move outside and around of Hot Springs, there is nothing anywhere close to that big until you get to Little Rock. And then even around Little Rock, there's, I mean, it's, it's, Arkansas is a very sparsely populated uh, area. So when I say rural, I'm talking about places like where I live, which I guess is up there, which is remote. Um, like I said yesterday, I think there's probably 50 families on several dozen square miles of land. And that's pretty remote. But yet there's little towns there to be involved with when you want to be. And his thought was maybe small town is better than being really remote or being urban. Because you get kind of the best of both worlds. You get the support system, the interactivity the community, some level of business opportunity, but you don't have the dangers of the city. I think you're right. Um, 
for me, though, the perfect balance is to find that good small town area. And again, this is highly personal. People have to make this decision for themselves. But to find that little perfect small town, that small town that fits you, your personality, your needs and desires, and then step back 10 to 15, maybe 20 miles away from that small town. A 20-mile drive is, is somewhere between a 20 to 30-minute drive. It's not that far. A 10-mile drive, you know, as long as you've got, you don't get behind some old man in a hat that does five miles an hour, which can happen in those areas, and it does up near Hot Springs. Trust me, folks. I get behind that old dude in a hat all the time. You know who I mean? The old man with the big ears and the hat pointed way up in the air. Um, you get behind him, it'll slow you down, but generally a 10-mile drive is 12, 13 minutes. So you're as close as you could possibly want to be, but when you're remote from a small town versus being like living in the suburbs of a city, it's a totally different environment. Um, so that's kind of my sweet spot for me. I know some of some people want to live out in the middle of nowhere Wyoming. Cool. I understand. I'd love to spend six months a year, uh, maybe in two months stints in a place like that. But I, even me, I don't really want to live there permanently. With uh, with my wife, Dorothy, it ain't going to happen anyway. So I gave up on that one a long time ago. But again, I think this is a highly personal decision. But it's a good suggestion um, from Doug about uh, an article. So I'll see what I can do about maybe putting together an article along those notes. And if I do, I'll try to mention you by your first name in the article, Doug. Um, if you want a greater citation than that, let me know. I don't give away people's personal information unless I'm uh, asked to. Um, next one comes from a person named Paul. Paul asks an interesting question. He says, uh, hey, i got a bunch of these big old snails in my garden. Um, I've been fighting and battling these things because they eat all my plants uh, and killing them, but I have a friend that suggested that not only should I kill them, I should eat them. And what are your thoughts on that? What experience do you have with snails? Um, well, let's start out with saying that I don't know what kind of snails these are. In general, just about any snail is safe to eat. Many slugs are actually quite dangerous to eat. Uh, they carry certain bacteria and diseases. So snails generally, yes. Slugs, um, you can do it, but you're taking a, a much bigger risk with a slug, and a slug should never be eaten raw or not, or eaten without actually gutting it before you cook it. Uh, and I don't know the specific diseases, but I've I've read enough and, and seen enough to know that you can have uh, dangers from slugs. I'm not aware of any snail that's unsafe to eat, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So you're going to need to confirm that the snails in your area are edible. I know there's a great variety of S cargo in California that inhabits a lot of gardens. It's very good to eat. And um, I, I like to eat snails. I really do. I think they're as good as any uh, any any mollusk out of the ocean. Let's face it, folks. A snail's a mollusk. If you like clams and scallops and stuff like that, you'll, you'll probably like snails. Uh, also be aware that if you've never eaten shellfish the first time you eat it, uh, I think you can get the same allergy, allergic response to, uh, to uh, a, a land snail as you could if you were, let's say, allergic to something like a scallop. So be aware and maybe take it easy the first time if you've never eaten anything in that family before. Next thing is, I don't know where you're from, but I bet you're either from England, Australia, or South Africa, uh, with, a, with a more likely to be England or Australia, because in his uh, email he used the word firstly. 
firstly, I'd like to say thank you for the podcast. Um, based on my experience with the British, you've got some of that heritage. So you're either in England um, or you are in uh, Australia or South Africa, and uh, I know nothing of the creatures that crawl where you live. So determine whether or not they're edible. And that's a rule for everybody with anything, whether it's an animal or a plant. Make sure it's safe to consume before you do it. But other than that, butter, garlic, heat up the pan first. Melt your butter, throw your garlic in the pan, get the garlic to start to turn that wonderful brown color, and throw the little suckers in there. Saute them up and eat them. They're good. I'll put it to you that way. Um, I buy a variety that comes in a can of escargot that are actually very affordable, or at least used to be. A place called Minyards had them, but that Minyards is closed, so I've lost my supply of these guys. Um, But they do stink when you cook them. They don't stink like in like a, oh, my God, I wouldn't eat that. But they have that fishy smell. It's really strong. Uh, So I recommend you fire that uh, frying pan up on your grill, uh, sit out there with a beer or three, and uh, get yourself some buddies that are willing to be a little bit adventurous. Get yourself some toothpicks and pick them right out of the pan and eat them. Um, Absolutely fabulous eating. And yes, a great source of almost uh, seemingly never-ending protein for some gardeners. Next question comes from Bill. Bill says, I live up north. I won't say northwest, east, south, or anything because I'm giving his name out. So any bill that's north of the Mason-Dixon line might be this bill. But Bill says it's getting really, really cold, and it's going to get a hell of a lot colder. What about my compost pile? Can we compost in the cold, and what are some things we can do to keep the compost pile going in the cold? Yeah, you can compost in the cold. Uh, right down to the point where it actually gets so cold that the compost uh, moisture freezes solid. So you want a good bin, a good contained bin. If you're a member, support brigade member, my three-part composting system might be a really good way to go. The thing about composting is when you do it right, it generates heat. In fact, you can take stuff like uh, some compost that's maybe 50% done, you dig a hole in the ground and put a layer of that there in the bottom and then put some plants down in the hole and put a glass covering over it and you can use the heat generated by the compost to protect your plants and that's called a hot frame. Uh, And that's a technique that a lot of people use, especially up north. You take a cold frame and you add a layer of of half composted compost to the bottom of it and that will keep your plants warm at night. So you you really shouldn't have much trouble composting. Some things you can do, though, because if it goes down, yeah, you're going down 15 degrees or so, and uh, your compost isn't really active at the moment, and it's kind of in that early stage, it's going to have a hard time kicking off. Uh, Using anything black uh, for your bin, black garbage cans, uh, the the commercially available black ones I don't really like. Uh, I had one, it fell apart. That's why I came up with the three-part bin system that I built with the ventilation tubing and all. a stack of tires and maybe paint a piece of plywood black and uh, lay it over the top. Make sure you drill some holes in it so it gets some ventilation uh, or a piece of uh, a, a tin over the top painted black and make sure you get, again, ventilation. Um, that'll help. Always try to take a piece of pipe with holes in it, put it down the center of your pile or a screen mesh uh, tube and put it down. If you get airflow, you're going to get much better composting action. Good mixes of your greens and browns. Lots of different 
stuff. Uh, try to keep your bins all along the same timeline. Um, that'll all do well. But the, the cold weather, except for the real extremes, uh, shouldn't hamper your composting. But the one thing you can do is make sure that you have your composting bins uh, in an area that gets a lot of solar exposure in the winter. Don't worry about it all in the summer. It'll take care of itself then. Uh, but that'll be one thing you can do because your sun's going to be lower in the sky and have a more direct angle in the winter. So as you're locating composting bins, no matter where you are in the country, try to think about getting as much sunlight hitting those bins in wintertime as you possibly can. Let's go ahead and take another question, but that was a good one. And, uh, Bill, thanks for that. Next question comes from Jason. Jason's got a great question. Really interesting question. When is an old rifle too old to shoot? In other words, when do I take that old rifle and be happy that I have it and call it a collectible and hang it on the wall or turn it into a lamp if it's worthless? Um, The answer is age is not the problem. The maintenance of the rifle, the treatment of the rifle, how it was assembled, if it was put together from spare parts, and things like that are the issue. Um, Now, with shotguns, you have a concern with what's called Damascus twist, but we won't go into that today. We'll save that for another day. But with rifles, um, pretty much any modern rifle, so made in the last 150 years, uh, should be safe to fire if it's been maintained properly and if you fire right for period ammunition in it. In other words, there are certain cartridges that evolved over time and maybe have higher pressures today uh, than they did back then. Not a lot of that, but there's some of that. Um, But I have a Turkish Mauser that was made in 1888. Um, it was rebarreled to 8 millimeter um, under a contract between Turkey and Germany in 1938. So it fires standard 8 millimeter round. It was made again in 1893, I believe. Um, and I take it out and I shoot it without any problems whatsoever. Uh, there's a little bit of bore pitting in it because we used corrosive ammo still around back then. And um, I've had to clean it out as best I can. But it shoots pretty good. I just leave it as it is. It's ugly. It's old. But uh, I actually had to uh, take some steel wool and uh, really, really fine steel wool and uh, polish the chamber out because of the corrosion. It would fire, but I had to use a... Uh, a cleaning rod to knock the brass out. The brass would get locked in the chamber, and a little bit of polish uh, took care of that. I just basically chucked a, uh, a wooden dowel into a drill and wrapped some uh, uh, steel wool around it. But here's the real answer. When in doubt, take your gun to a qualified gunsmith who will inspect it uh, by looking for cracks and looking for headspace and looking for a lot of things that if you're not a qualified head, uh, a gunsmith, you are not aware of and maybe you don't have the tools to do. But if the qualified gunsmith gives it is okay, then it should be safe to shoot. Now, if you're unsure at all, first shot, tie it to a bench, throw a couple tires on it, tie a string around it, pull the trigger from 20 feet away and see what happens. The other thing I'll tell you, in older rifles, it's really a good practice uh, to maybe hand load and hand load two or three loads or maybe even a little bit more under maximum. 
kind of that, that, that mid-range. And honestly, a lot of times, those are the loads that are going to shoot the most accurately in any rifle anyway. We don't always need to push maximum uh, in our rifle loadings. But the big thing is qualified gunsmith. Uh, it's not like, okay, the rifle was made in, in 1905, and it was saved today, but five years from now, it all of a sudden becomes unsafe. It's maintenance, and it's how much shooting has been done with it. Uh, let's face it, those explosive uh, rounds have an effect on the rifle, and a lot of times you'll actually shoot uh, long enough to where the barrel needs to be replaced, but the action's still good. The real thing with an older gun is do you really want to shoot it a lot? Uh, has it become a collectible? Has it gone to a point where maybe you can preserve its valuable value better by not shooting it anymore or shooting it infrequently? It's another consideration, but uh, really good question, Jason. Let's. Uh, I think we got two more up today before we move on and uh, close out the show. This one is uh, from someone named Sherry, and it's not really a question. It was more of a suggestion, uh, but it's something I've thought about a lot, so I thought I'd uh, throw in Sherry's suggestion and my thoughts. Um, what she suggested is, you know, you can get these uh, solar-powered yard lights now very inexpensively. Um, they seem to be everywhere, Home Depot, Lowe's, Walmart, you name it. There, there's, there's tons of them out there. And they're not real, real bright, but they do provide some lighting. And they have them out in their yard, and they use them as yard lights. But recently, during a blackout, at night they would go out and grab them, and every kid had their own little solar-powered light uh, kind of to move around the house with instead of using the higher-powered lighting and wearing down batteries and things like that. And they pretty much will make it through the better part of a night, if not a full night. And, uh, you know, kind of what do I think of that? I think it's great, and uh, I've thought about it myself. Recently, Walmart's come out with these little pole lights. They're pretty cheap. They're about 4 bucks a piece, like three ninety six or something like that. They come in like a, a copper, uh, a black, and kind of a steel look. But the tops are plastic. Um, they're cheaply made as well. I'd, I'd like to find something maybe that's affordable but maybe a little bit better made than these. And I'll tell you what I've learned about them. Uh, one, we put them on, since they're inexpensive, we put them on both sides of our driveway in Arkansas because a lot of times we get there at night and we back in and it's kind of hard to see out of the truck when it's loaded. Um, you got to use the side mirrors and the backup lighting's not that great. And my driveway up there is really long and you don't really want to go off one side and you really don't want to go off the other side so setting those up made it easier to back in and out in the dark so I thought that was a good thing and I immediately thought hey man these things make pretty good lighting in fact I've you know I've got the same lights in my backyard in Arlington and sometimes when I'm cooking, I'll go out and grab a couple of them and set them on our little table, just kind of set them upside down, pull them off their stakes, and when there's people sitting out there while I'm cooking with me, we kind of have like a nice little mood lighting thing, and you can kind of see with them. So I-, I thought they were cool for that. Here's my two concerns. One, um, the ones up in Arkansas I get nailed with the sun. They're only about six months old, and they're very, very faded. All the plastic is faded out. Uh, they still work, but they don't look really good, and I guarantee you in another year... They're going to look like crap. So you might want to think about if it's long-term and getting really good solar exposure, uh, finding a little bit higher quality of an item, and maybe buying a couple of something and testing it out for a, a while and seeing how it, it, uh, how it lasts before you invest heavily in them. 
The other thing is, um, understand that when there's a lot of rainstorms and stuff like that, um, and it's cloudy out, they may not work. When we got there um, Thursday night, it, we thought they were all broken. Uh, none of them were on. There was no light whatsoever. And what it had been, it had been like three days of rain, and uh, it had been dark for several hours before we got there, and the little bit of charge they did get maybe lasted them three hours. So um, with storms, while there's a storm around and their solar exposure is poor, they may not work for you since they rely on solar power. But other than that, it's a good idea and a good suggestion. And if anybody's found a particular uh, model of kind of a standalone, one-off solar uh, yard light or maybe a two-pack or something that's reasonably affordable but doesn't fade out in the sun really quick and they're happy with, let me know because I'm looking to put a lot of these things up in Arkansas throughout my garden and things like that just because I think it'll look cool and for walking around at night. And yes, additional light sources. Um, but what I've seen so far that's a really, a, we call it affordable class, it's also really cheap. Uh, so I'm kind of looking for that sweet spot between what's really expensive, uh, what's really cheap, and what will work really good and last a while. Now that said, the ones I have in Arlington I've had for like a year, and they, they seem to get enough solar exposure to charge, they haven't faded out anywhere near as bad because they don't get hit as hard by the sun. Uh, so if you're using them in kind of a park shade where they get a few hours of sun a day, that's probably enough to give them, uh, if it's good sunlight, to get them through most of the night for you. And I got one more question, so let's go ahead and take that. So good question, Sherry. Um, next question, uh, didn't write the guy's name down, dude. Sorry I missed you over there. or Maybe you didn't tell me what it was. Um, but the guy asked me about silver. So you talk a lot about silver, and he's been buying basically like Morgan and Peace dollars. He's been getting them for about 14 bucks, and that's that's a damn good price. I'd keep buying some at that price. But he said he's been thinking, should he should he switch to buying, in general, 364 coins, you know, quarters, dimes, 50 cent pieces, um, or should he switch maybe to American Eagles, or maybe to switch to commemorative coins um, like Tea Party Silver does? Which is better? Well, I say spread spread it around. Create diversity within diversity in your own portfolio. I, I definitely own Silver Eagles. Um, I recently bought 20 ounces of them because I got a good deal on them uh, several months ago. I got a great deal on 20, 20 Silver Eagles uh, in a roll off a guy on eBay. And um, it was well under spot, actually. I'm not sure why he was selling them that cheap, but uh, he, uh, he had a great deal, so I bought 20 Silver Eagles. Um, I definitely bought a commemorative some Tea Party Silver. They're a little bit more expensive than a Silver Eagle, but they're .999 pure silver, uh, so they have an intrinsic silver value, and uh, they have a little bit of a collector value, but they're not, ex- you know, the majority of their value is held in the silver versus numismatics, but it throws a little bit of new- numismaticism in there, right, because they're cool. Um, the pre-64s, I own a ton of quarters, 50-cent pieces, and dimes. Because if we ever go into a barter situation, it's far more divisible to be able to break things up into dimes and quarters uh, than to just rely on maybe silver dollar size pieces of coinage if you want less of something. Uh, I also think that they have a little bit of numismatic value as well. Again, the primary value held within the silver uh, commodity and a little bit of numismatic value as well. So that kind of creates diversity. So I say spread it out and break it up. By If you're buying a little bit every month, buy one type one month, one type the next month, one type the next month. Keep doing that. Build up that silver portfolio. 
Keep them in a good firebox or safe. Make sure they're locked up. Make sure they're secure. But have that tangible asset. That's great. Now, here's a caveat. One thing we have to understand about pre-64 U.S. coins just includes your piece in Morgan dollars that you've been buying and any quarters or dimes or what have you, 50 cent pieces. Um, they are 90% silver. So they are not equivalent weight. So if you have a silver dollar and a silver eagle, they'll weigh the same, basically, but they're not the same amount of silver. So I really recommend that when you're buying silver coins that are pre-64, you go to Coinflation and find the underlying melt value of the silver in the coins. I don't really worry about uh, the the other metals that are in there and what their value is. Value the coins on a commodity basis based on the silver because that's all anybody really cares about um, with those coins is the silver value and then is there any numismatic value but people don't care about the, the copper or tin or anything else that's in any of those coins. They care about the silver when it comes to commodity pricing. Make sure you're looking at the spot prices on them. But they all have a purpose. And again, the smaller denominations are more divisible. It's easier to uh, to come to an agreement on a barter price if you have some silver quarters and silver dimes. That is the extreme, though, that that would ever occur. right? That's the true end of the world as we know it. Cash was king for a little while and devalued to nothing. Hard goods like food were the, and, and gasoline and bullets were traded. And then society is beginning to rebuild itself and people are trusting metal because there is no paper currency that's being trusted until society is rebuilt. So that's the extreme. So it's not necessary, and I wouldn't make it your priority one, but it's an easy, cheap way to add a lot of silver to your collection and preserve something that does have historic significance, which is what our money looked like before everybody went and screwed it up. So there's my thoughts on that, and definitely good to have in your portfolio, folks, some silver, and uh, though I think the price is a bit high at the moment, adding some gold is not a bad idea either. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up today, but this is great questions, folks. Had me moving all over the place. Gardening, silver, investing, politics, guns. Love it. So keep the questions coming, and I'll keep the answers coming. Um, I'm not opposed to occasionally doing two listener question shows a week. Honestly, they're easier for me because you guys write my outline. I just go through and, and pick the questions that I can give good answers to, and maybe I either haven't answered yet or haven't answered in a long time. So appreciate every single one of you guys who sent me a question. I appreciate everybody that's listening. And as I close today, remember, keep on working, man. Keep on building your preparedness up. Keep on building your redundancy up. Keep on building up your self-reliance. Keep on aiming for more and more self-sufficiency. Remember the difference between self-reliance and self-sufficiency. Self-reliance means you can get by if something goes wrong. Self-sufficiency means you don't need anything and what you do choose to take from systems you do by choice, not by necessity. And uh, those two things work hand in hand and they build upon each other. And keep working on those things. And remember always, do it for yourself in your way. Take the information you get from me. Take the information you get from other people. Take the information you get from forums, from books, from any source. Take all of the information, disseminate it, create and write and live your own plan. My plan will not work for you. It will work for me because it's mine. If I said step one, da-da-da, step two, da-da-da, step three, da da 
about uh, allocate X funds for this, Y funds for that. Don't do this. Do do that. By this model, it's not going to work. All I can do is tell you my opinion of all of these things that I've been exposed to, all of these things that I've tried, and let you assemble your personalized plan that fits your lifestyle, that fits your comfort level, that fits the things that are important to you, and you make your plan your own. And if you do that, you'll stick with it. And like I uh, made fun of the 2012ers, I won't be buying your crap for half price on eBay someday, because you'll buy what makes sense for you, things that you can use in your regular life, and you'll build a sustainable lifestyle that you can be proud of. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter, cause it all gets spent.